0: you were to ask me, what makes for a good preacher? What are the characteristics of a, a solid pastor, a solid teacher? There are several characteristics that I would list. First, I would say they must know the Word of God. They must know what it says and how it flows and how it points to Jesus. A great preacher knows how most every passage fits in God's story and how it ties to Christ and God's gospel and how it applies to us. Second, I would say they must know how to communicate God's Word effectively. A good preacher not only knows God's Word, but knows how to communicate it in a way that it can be understood by the common man and woman and knows how to communicate it in a way that is captivating and intriguing. I would say that good preachers also speak the truth in love. They don't shy away from difficult passages and challenging texts and doctrines within the text. They preach them with boldness, yet they do it in love. They do it respectfully. Good preachers can also effectively defend and contend for the faith. They know how God's Word is, they, they know how to teach it, they they know how to defend it, they know how to, to, to fight for it against skeptics and critics. Good preachers are also missional. They have a desire to make Christ known where he is not known and to be his witnesses to the unbelieving and watching world. I would say that Great preachers also live what they preach. They preach to themselves and they apply what they preach to themselves as much as they preach to others. They're men of of great integrity and they display great faith. And lastly, their message stirs great emotions and results in great action, both positive and negative. God uses their words to bring the hardest of sinners to repentance and the most resistant of believers to obedience, and their message also produces great enemies. Some of my favorite pastors and teachers, some of the most despised men by the world because they stand on the truth in God's Word, which is counter to the ways and the teachings of the world. They don't shy away from it. They defend it and they contend for it. These characteristics, in my opinion, are what make for great preachers. And in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we see all of these characteristics bundled up in the person of Stephen. Stephen lived what he preached. He was a man of great integrity and faith. We learn in the first part of Acts 6 that the church, as it was growing it was having more issues. Therefore, it needed to get more organized, and they decided to appoint seven men of great faith and integrity and wisdom to lead this early church. And of the thousands to choose from, Stephen is at the top of the list. We also learned last week that on top of being a great servant in the church, he went above and beyond for the cause of Christ out in the world in ministry. Not only did he help handle issues within the church, but he took God's gospel message out into the world in hopes of growing God's church and advancing his kingdom. So He was a man of great integrity, a man of great faith, a man of great wisdom, and he was a mission-minded minister. He had a desire to see the lost come to know him. He was passionate about making Christ known where he is not known, and we are going to learn today as we look at Stephen's great sermon in Acts chapter 7 that he knew the word of God, and he knew how it pointed to Jesus, and he defended it. And he contended for it, for the truth. So this morning, we're going to look at this great sermon by this great man of faith. We're going to discuss what makes this message so amazing and why this message angered these people to such an extent that they killed Stephen for it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 7. We are going to be tackling a huge passage of scripture this morning, so pray for me, all right? We're going to be discussing verses 1 through 53, and normally I would break a passage like this up, but there's really nowhere for me to do that here. This is meant to be one unit. There is no break. This is one sermon, and whenever we come to a sermon in the scriptures, we need to ask the question, what prompted this sermon? What led to Stephen preaching this message? Well, remember when we were in Acts 6, we talked about Stephen's ministry to the foreign Jewish assemblies. We learn in verse 9 that there is this confrontation between Stephen and those Grecian Jewish leaders from the synagogues of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia. And we discussed that the reason for this confrontation is because Stephen was doing great signs and wonders in the power of the Holy Spirit before this people, and he was probably traveling around to these synagogues, and he was preaching Christ to Jews like him, Jews on the fringe, outsiders in Jerusalem, because remember we said Stephen was not a Hebrew, he was a Grecian Jew as well. And apparently, he was doing a good job at it, or he would not have had this confrontation here that we see here in Acts 6 verse 9. Because Stephen was too skilled to be beat in an argument, they attack his character and they accuse him of blasphemy. They accuse him of speaking against the four major pillars of Judaism at this time. Speaking against Moses and God and the law and the temple And in Acts chapter 7, verse 1, we're told this, that the high priest said, Are these things so, Stephen? Is this true? Are you a blasphemer? Have you spoken against the God of your ancestors, and against Moses, and against God's temple, and against his law? And in Acts chapter 7, we're told Stephen addresses this question with the sermon. Though he defends himself against these charges, he does more than that. And I'm going to go ahead and give you all the points to my sermon right up front, okay? Because what Stephen does in this sermon doesn't happen one after another in sequence. Many of these things he's doing simultaneously, okay? So you can fill out your outline right now and then take notes under the appropriate points when I address him in the message, okay? Okay. These points will also help you as you go back and read through this sermon and study this text once again, which I would encourage you to do because we're going to be moving fast. There are four things Stephen does in this message. First, he defends himself against these charges of blasphemy while, number two, keeping their interest. Yet he also, number three, shows them their sin. And fourth and finally, Stephen preaches that Christ is the Messiah, okay? So Stephen defends himself against blasphemy, keeps their interest, shows them their sin, and preaches that Christ is the Messiah. Notice first, he defends himself against the charges of blasphemy. As we said a moment ago, and we've said over the past couple of weeks, Stephen was a man of great integrity. And because of that, he is all about what is right and true. And the charges made against him were just not true. He had not spoken against God. He had not spoken against Moses and against the law and against the temple. It was not true. So he begins this sermon by defending himself. Look at verse 2. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. I love the way he begins that, don't you? Stephen is bold. Like we said last week, he was a man of great boldness and courage and power. He is not cowering due to their pressure, but he is boldly saying, you guys listen up. Because what I'm about to tell you is extremely important. Verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. This is a great start to this sermon. I'll tell you why. Because Stephen affirms here that he believes in the God of the Scriptures and he also establishes the fatherhood of Abraham over Israel. He's not a traitor of Judaism. He's not an enemy of God but he is a believer in him. Notice he refers to God as the God of glory. You know what glory means here when used in reference to God? It refers to all that God is. John MacArthur once said it this way. He said, glory is the fullness of the manifestation of all that God is. That's what Stephen's saying. saying, I believe in God in the fullest conceivable sense. I believe in all that God is. And notice what else he says. He says, I believe God appeared to our father Abraham. So Stephen's not anti-God, right? He's not anti-Jewish. He's not anti-Abraham. He affirms that he is his father and the father of the Jewish nation. God appointed Abraham, called him out, of Mesopotamia out of Ur of the Chaldees, and said in verse 3, go out from your land from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Verse 4, then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So what Stephen's simply doing here is he's retelling their story. He says it starts with Abraham. God chose Abraham. He called him out of Ur, and he went to Haran, and then he called Abraham out from Haran after his father died, from his homeland to a new land, the land where you are now living. So Stephen, he's speaking their language here. He's saying, I believe in the God of Abraham, and I believe he chose Abraham to father our great nation and he also shows them that Abraham was a great man of faith he believed God surrendered himself to his will and he followed God into this new land so Stephen is defending himself against these charges of blasphemy by affirming he believes in the God of the scriptures and by affirming that their father Abraham was God's man a man of great faith so he's keeping their interest right point number two by reciting their history. They couldn't argue with him up to this point. Look at verse 5. Yet he gave Abraham no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him Though he had no child. Stephen here just continuing to recite Israel's great history and he reminds them though Abraham got promise, he did not get possession. Once again, highlighting the great faith of Abraham. He was given all these great promises but did not live to see many of them fulfilled. He was promised a child and he did live to see that, Isaac, but he did not live to see all the children that came after and did not live to see his children possess this land that God had promised and did not live to see how all the nations would be blessed because of him. But Abraham believed God. He believed in God's promises. Look at verse 6 through 8. And God spoke to this effect. That his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Notice in verse 8, Stephen affirms God gave his people a sign. He gave a sign to Abraham, a sign that would identify his people. He said, on the eighth day of life, the male child is to be circumcised. Stephen affirms that God gave their father, Abraham, the covenant sign of circumcision and that this sign was passed on to Isaac circumcised on the eighth day and on to Jacob and Jacob on to his 12 sons who are the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Stephen is saying, I believe in this. I affirm that God called Abraham and he gave him the covenant sign of circumcision. I believe that this covenant sign was passed down through the Jewish patriarchs, on down to us boy i bet at this point the the jewish people in the crowd are nodding their heads right in agreement with stephen he's speaking their language and he also reminds them in verses six and seven that god told abraham that his offspring would live as strangers in a land belonging to others and would be enslaved and afflicted for 400 years what's he talking about there about the exodus, right? Talking about their time in Egypt. How did they get there? He tells them. Look at verses 9 through 17. And the patriarchs, he's talking about the heads of Israel, Joseph's brothers, jealous of Joseph. Y'all remember this story, right? Sold them into Egypt but God was with them and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers, Joseph's brothers, on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem, verse 17. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Y'all know this, many of y'all know this story, right? The end of Genesis, we learn of the story of Joseph and his brothers. And I don't have time to go into all the details. I'll try to summarize it quickly. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was one of his favorites. The other brothers didn't like that. They didn't like Joseph, all right? Then Joseph starts having dreams about things bowing down to him. That's the way they interpreted it, and they interpreted it rightly. They said, we're going to bow down to you. That didn't make them like him any better, all right? So they decide, we're going to kill Joseph. But after deliberating, they decide instead, being the nice brothers that they are, we'll sell him into slavery. Y'all brothers and sisters in here don't get any ideas, all right? And so... He's sold into slavery, and over time, he rises to power in Egypt through God's providence. He's interpreting dreams of Pharaoh that there's this coming famine that's coming. So Egypt, they take Joseph's advice through his interpretation, and they prepare for it. And all these other nations begin to go to Egypt to get food and jacob does that he sends these his sons the heads of the tribes of israel to egypt not knowing joseph's in power there thinking his son is dead and this family is reunited and the jewish people small at this time they relocate to egypt all right and over hundreds of years they multiply and grow in egypt so again Stephen is defending himself against these charges, and he's keeping their interest by reciting their great history, and he's affirming the fact that God's hand of providence is all over their history. But notice what he also does here with Joseph. This is key. I want you to see this. He reminds them, get this, at times the patriarchs got it wrong. They erred. They turned against God and God's man. Do you see where he's going with this? See where where Stephen's going? It says in verse 9, The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery, but God corrected their mistake and rescued him. He reminds them that their great patriarchs, the head of the Jewish tribes, turned against the one God had appointed. Again, see where he's going? with this this is point number three here stephen's message while defending himself against blasphemy keeping their attention by reciting their great history he is also addressing the sin of the jewish people god appointed joseph the patriarchs rejected joseph and stephen returns to this point over and over again throughout this sermon look at verse 18 The Jews continued to grow and grow in Egypt until there arose in Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. So we're in Exodus now, right? Verse 19, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. He had the babies put to death. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So Moses is spared, verse 22. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Let's stop here for just a minute so much I'd love to go into in this passage. We just don't have time. What I have done is I've provided these stories for you in your spiritual growth guide on Joseph and Moses. I would encourage you to go back and read through those this week. Take time to read that. But I do want to make two points here. I want to show you two things that Stephen does when talking about Moses. Number one, he speaks well of Moses. And number two, in the next passage we're going to look at, he reminds those in his audience of how the jewish people rejected moses first he speaks well of him in in stephen's day they were accusing him of being anti-moses but he lets him know here he believed moses to be a great man of god in this passage he says moses was beautiful in god's sight he had god's favor he was mighty in words and deeds he was a great defender and deliverer of god's people again Stephen sure doesn't sound anti-Moses here, does he? He didn't speak against Moses. He didn't reject him. Notice who does, though. Look at verse 23 through 29. When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Many of y'all are familiar with that story as well, right? So he highlights the fact here that Moses is a great defender of the Jews. Verse 25. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. So we're, we're let in on a little something we don't read in the Old Testament account. Moses was hoping that the Jews would see him as God's man and as their deliverer. But do they? Stephen says at the end of verse 25... But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling. Two Jews were quarreling. And he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust Moses aside, said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me? Just like you killed the Egyptian yesterday, at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Stephen reminds the Jews once again, it was their fathers who rejected God's man. God had preserved Moses' life when they were taking the lives of all these Jewish children in Egypt. And God protects Moses so that he can use him to be this great defender and deliverer of his people. And the first time Moses steps into that role to defend them, they reject him. Sound familiar? You see where Stephen's going once again? And he flees. And notice how long he's gone. Verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, that's a long time, An angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled, did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. Stephen says, verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, Stephen makes it clear he's not speaking against Moses. He says in verse 35, God made him ruler and redeemer in Israel. Stephen tells his Jewish audience, I'm not speaking against Moses, but guess what? Our ancestors did. They sure did. They rejected him. He was God's man and they rejected him saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Well, God had, right? But they didn't see it. And they continued to rebel against God. They continued to rebel against God's man, which is why, folks, they spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering around aimlessly. See, Stephen's not anti-Moses. He's trying to help them see here that the mistakes of their Jewish fathers are the same mistake they made about Jesus and they're making about him. See, Moses talked about the coming of Jesus, didn't he? Deuteronomy chapter 18. Look at verse 37 of Acts 7. Stephen quotes Deuteronomy. He says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, Get this, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Who's Moses talking about? Take a wild guess. Sunday school answer, it's Jesus never go wrong with the answer Jesus that's what he's talking about that's who he's looking toward here Stephen is telling them here just like our Jewish fathers rejected Moses as their deliverer you have rejected the one Moses talked about the Lord Jesus Moses said Jesus would come they rejected Moses and you have rejected Jesus the one he said would come once again Though Stephen is defending himself against these charges and keeping their interest by retelling this story, he's also showing them their sin. And he continues to do this throughout the rest of this passage, especially in verses 38 through 45. Remember, not only did they accuse Stephen of speaking against Moses and God, but they also accused him of speaking against the law and the temple. But Stephen reminds them in this passage that though God appointed men who upheld the law and treasured God's temple, it was their Jewish fathers, get this, that violated God's law and misunderstood the purpose of his temple. Look at where he shows them this. Look at verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles given to us. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us and For this, Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands, but God turned away, gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me to slain beasts? Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Ratham, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now, there's a lot here. But notice first, Stephen speaks highly of the law. They said Stephen was anti-law. He wasn't anti-law. He believed in the law. He believed God gave the law to Moses at Sinai. He refers to it in verse 38 as the living oracles. He didn't believe the law to be dead rules, but the living commandments of God. And he reminds the Jews in his audience that though Moses was God's man, though he upheld God's law, the Jews in that day rejected Moses and they violated God's law. Get this, while Moses is receiving the law at Sinai, what are they doing? They are at the foot of the mountain rejecting God's law, violating his commandments. And even Aaron was involved in it. The very time and place God's laws were being received by Moses, they were being rejected by God's people. They were worshiping a golden calf. God's on the mountain saying, no other gods but me. Don't bow before other idols. And they're at the foot of the mountain looking to everyone but God, looking to themselves and worshiping a golden calf. And Aaron is involved in this. And this sin of idolatry, folks, that starts at Sinai is a sin that stains Israel and it stays with them, and it's a sin they commit over and over again until God finally turns away from them and gave them over to their false worship and sends them into exile in Babylon. So Stephen, he defends himself against the charges of blasphemy against God's law, and he also defends himself against those who are saying he's speaking against God's temple there were some who said that that Stephen is also anti-temple look at verse 44 look how he corrects them our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness remember they had the tabernacle God's holy tent right there in their camp God's presence that moved with them where he moved just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua, so it continued on, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Verse 47, But it was Solomon who built the house Again, many of y'all familiar with this story, right? David wanted to build God a house, a permanent dwelling place, but God said it's going to be your son Solomon who is going to build it. So Stephen, once again, he's saying, I believe in the temple. I believe that God told Moses to erect the tabernacle in the wilderness in the midst of camp. I believe that God tabernacled with his people, that he dwelt with them there, and that he appointed Solomon to build a permanent place in Jerusalem. But notice what else he says. This is key right here, verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. You know who said that? Solomon said that. The one who built this grand temple. He acknowledged that the house he built, though it was the greatest one they had, could not hold God. Stephen says, I'm not blaspheming the temple. I just realized that God is bigger than the box you think you got him in. That's what he's saying. Then he quotes Isaiah in in verse 49. Heaven is my throne, God says, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, "Or, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all things? He says, God tells us through Isaiah that heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. God says, what kind of house are you going to make to house a God like me? That's what he's saying. Any earthly place, no matter how grand, pales in comparison to how great I am. So Stephen says, I'm not rejecting God and his temple. I just have a bigger view of him than you do. I share the perspective of Solomon and Isaiah and God who spoke through Isaiah. So notice once again here, Stephen defends himself against these charges of blasphemy. He keeps their interest by retelling their story. He shows them the sin of their fathers. And then notice this he addresses their sin and he shows them the Messiah. Look at verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Wow. We say in the South, them are fighting words, right? Being stiff-necked means being resistant to god refusing to bow to him and he calls them uncircumcised in heart and ears remember they prided themselves on circumcision they even referred to themselves as the circumcision there was a circumcision party that was the outward sign of god's people and stephen comes along and says that's all you got All you have is the physical all you have is the outward your hearts and minds have not been changed in the least bit He says you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you there you go right there folks right there That's the reason Stephen gives us this long history He's showing them what your fathers have done you have done And you are doing That's the reason he gives this long history to show them, to defend himself, and also to show them what your fathers have done. You're doing the exact same thing. Look at verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Stop there for a minute. Folks, do I need to remind you of how the Jews treated God's prophets? Jeremiah was put in stocks. He was stoned. Isaiah was sawn in half. Stephen says they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, here it comes, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. 53, you have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He says these prophets who preached against the sins of God's people and who announced the the coming of Christ, they, they were rejected by our fathers, and they were killed, and you have done the same thing to the one they spoke about, to the Lord Jesus. You have betrayed him. You have put him to death. Folks, do you see the irony here in Stephen's sermon? These Jewish leaders had accused Stephen of being God's enemy. Stephen says, no, you guys are, because you have rejected the ones that he has sent you have rejected his son it says you guys are the blasphemers just like your fathers before you Who rejected God all the way through just like the the patriarchs who turned on God's man Joseph and the Jews who rejected God's man Moses who violated God's laws as it was being given and long after and who failed to value God's presence in their midst in the tent and later on in his temple and who later defiled it and ended up in exile as a result away from God's presence and apart from his favor. Stephen says just like them you have rejected God because you have rejected his son Jesus. Jesus was God's man, sent from God to you. He, like Moses, came. From royalty to you, yet his person and his place of authority far surpassed that of Moses. He is God the Son who left the riches of heaven and came to tabernacle among you. He came to deliver you. He came to rescue you from your sin. And how did you respond? You rejected him, and as a result, you remain exiled from God just as they were in Babylon. learn in the next passage we look at they make the mistake all over again don't they they make it with Stephen he was God's appointed man the man with the glow of God on his face a man full of faith and grace and the spirit and power and they rejected him and they killed him they rejected God by rejecting his man Jesus and, and the question for you today is very very simple What is your response going to be to God's man? What are you going to do with Jesus? Simple question. Pray if you have not, you would give your life up and over to him. Reject your life. Reject what you want. That's what scripture tells us. Release the grip you have on the reins of your own life and give them up and over to the Lord Jesus. Make him your Lord. Please, I plead with you today, if you're listening, if you have ears to hear, do not reject God by rejecting his son. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation and be saved.